In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. In 2020, Pope Francis began Ash Wednesday in the very ancient Basilica of Santa Sabina, a basilica that dates back to the 5th century, about 435, during the reign of Sixtus III. Now, despite the interventions over the centuries, it remains really a very solemn and austere and beautiful basilica. There are descriptions from pilgrims over the centuries that are just enraptured by the beauty of this basilica. I mean, it's quite austere, but it contains some tile mosaics that create a kind of shimmering effect on the walls and and it's almost as though the walls seem to float and it's as though the architect wanted to suggest the symbol of light the divinity of light and that light was of course a symbol of Christ and it's in this beautiful basilica that Pope Francis opened Lent in 2020 on Ash Wednesday and today as well we have begun Lent with our fasting and prayer and almsgiving. And you will remember that this morning when you received the ashes, the priest said something. I don't know if you understood, but he said, You are dust, and to dust you shall return. That's where is that phrase from? You are dust and from dust you shall return. Well, that's from the book of Genesis. It refers to, to Adam, who was created from the dust. And this is what Pope Francis said. He said, The dust sprinkled on our heads brings us back to earth. It reminds us that we are dust, and to dust we shall return. We are weak, frail, and mortal, Centuries and millennia pass, and we come and go. Before the immensity of galaxies and space, we are nothing. We are dust in the universe, yet we are dust loved by God. And it pleased the Lord to gather that dust in his hands and breathe into it the breath of life. We are thus a dust that is that is precious, he says, destined for eternal life. See that, those ashes, that dust is, a, is destined for eternal life. And he continues, he says, We are the dust of the earth upon which God has poured out his heaven, the dust that contains his dreams. We are God's hope, his treasure, and his glory. Ashes 
he says, are thus a reminder of the direction of our existence, a passage from dust to life. We are dust, earth, clay, but if we allow ourselves to be shaped by the hands of God, we become something wondrous. More often than not, though, especially at times of difficulty and loneliness, we only see our dust. But the Lord encourages us. In His eyes, our littleness is of infinite value. So He says, let us take heart. We were born to be loved. We were born to be children of God. So this is for us, therefore, given that love that God has for us, this time, this Lent, is like an itinerary of a more intense spiritual training so that we can become more aware of the grandeur of that love of God. And that's why the liturgy reminds us of those three penitential practices that are very close and very dear to our biblical tradition and Christian tradition, prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. And all that is is not just to be difficult, it's, it's really to prepare us for Easter, where we will in a particular way experience the, the, the grandeur and, and the power of God, as we will hear in the Easter Vigil. It says, we say, dispels all evil, washes guilt away, restores lost innocence, brings mourners joy, casts out hatred, brings us peace and humbles earthly pride. That is what is said in the, the Preconium Pasquale, you know, the famous hymn that is said there at the very beginning of the Easter Vigil. And, well, which of these practices, prayer, almsgiving, or fasting, should we focus on? Well, we can focus on prayer. Every year in the middle of winter, when the slush has dried up, and the days start getting a bit longer, and maybe a bit warmer, we start to hear the chickadee, call and that's always very encouraging because it means that spring is coming or at least sort of and we also know that the feast of St. Joseph is coming March 19th which is another occasion for us to renew our dedication but it's especially that chirping of the chickadee this little bird so tiny it's always chirping and it symbolizes its positive nature, its cheerful nature, its flexibility, its courage. You could resume that or summarize that in its gumption. And I pray that we go into Lent now with gumption. Even though we may have our aches and pains, our tiredness, we have to be like those brave little birds they know how to stand up for themselves. Even if I suppose they're quite fragile, I mean, they are pretty small, right? But they only grow really a couple of inches at most. 
and they have a lot of nasty predators around them. And for us, during this Lent, perhaps one of the predators that we have to be careful, watch over, is the predator of sadness, the predator of discouragement, or maybe thinking a bit too cynically about your role here in Lincroft or among those around you. Maybe this time of Lent is a time to dissipate any cynical poison that could, that could enter our thoughts or that could darken our mood. And that's why the chickadee is there. He sets the tone for the month. As we know, the, the liturgical color has also changed. We went from green which, okay, green is nice, but now we're in purple. And it too will set the tone. In, in Hawthorne, we just got a new set of vestments, and we have a very bright violet garment or, or, or vestment. It's very beautiful, made in Mexico. And why, why do we wear purple for Lent? Well, we know that Jesus was dressed in a purple robe during his passion as a mockery of his being king of the Jews. Since long before his time, purple was always seen as a symbol of royalty. And it was the dye that was most expensive, very difficult to make, and therefore was only used by royalty. Other colors were easier to make, and therefore this image of these soldiers dressing Jesus in an old purple rag or a purple robe of some kind was a symbolic act and it was intended to disrespect him, to mock him. And maybe when we see the color purple, well, it reminds us of that mockery that Jesus suffered the disrespect of those soldiers. Maybe they were cynically kneeling in front of him. It reminds us of the disrespect that we may have had with our sins and that we are called, as soon as we see that color violet, that we are called to repent, to ask forgiveness. Maybe we haven't really tapped into the level of repentance that we're called to, to have during this time. Maybe it's just, well, it's just ashes. It's just that we haven't really looked at our sins. That's so why Lent is really a time to live penance for our sins and conversion and to reject all that separates us from the royal king, king of the universe, our Lord Jesus Christ. You can think of the the rich man in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Well, the rich man, it says in the gospel, was clothed in purple, in majestic robes, in worldly splendor. But our Lord, ironically, the true king, the majestic king, dies for us, and he wears the same purple robes. In fact, in Exodus 
we read how Moses ordered the tabernacle to be made of ten sheets of woven fine linen, linen twine and violet, purple and scarlet yarn. So that's, that's how the tabernacle was uh, decorated. Apparently, this use of this color in the liturgy was not right from the beginning. In at the beginning, it was always white, but then by the 4th century, colors were introduced, and they each had their different uh, symbol. And uh, But they were, above all, meant to be an invitation to confront our own sins, to prepare ourselves spiritually. And, of course, violet has something solemn about it. And... Uh, as I understand, it was in the 12th century when Pope Innocent III decided to determine which color was for what, and and violet could be a replacement for the black, which was traditionally the, the color for Lent. And I have come to understand that some people like to wear violet during Lent. They wear a violet or a purple sweater, or they will wear some bracelet that is purple, or a nice little handkerchief tied to their purse, or some accessory that reminds them of what time of year it is. It was lovely to see today as I was walking on the street on Blur that I crossed several people who had a splotch of black on their forehead. Right? These were generally older people, but uh, and then behind them I would see a guy, you know, holding on a huge meat sandwich of some kind. <laughs> Completely the opposite, right? I'm not going to tell him, hey, what are you doing? Man? It's, uh, but I'm not going to tell him anything. I don't know who this person is, but one person has a splotch, the other person has a sandwich. Well, what can you do? No. So, these 40 days are for us a time of conversion. The actual idea of having a Lenten season started with the Council of Nicaea. Nicaea, in the year 325, was a major council in the history of the Church because it resolved a lot of the Christological controversies that existed then, especially against the Arians. The Arians, because of the Bishop of Constantinople, who Arius, who said that Jesus was the created being, he wasn't God, he was just a, a good guy, he wasn't really a God and many bishops had become Arians. And this was a, a deep point of contention because if Christ wasn't really God, how, how was, we, was he really going to be our savior? And, um, and so they, they established the, the true nature of Christ, both man and God. And some of the 318 bishops that were there came, and many of them had actually been mutilated during the persecutions of the Emperor Maximian and the Emperor Lucinius. Some of them had scars on their faces. Some of them had gashes on their arms. Others had been blinded because they, they suffered the persecution. But they stayed faithful to you, no matter what the cost. It was ultimately about the fundamental saving message of Jesus Christ, which meant that they had to affirm that Christ was truly God. And one of the things they did there in that council 
that ecumenical councils, what they, they determined the time of fasting that we now, now call Lent, partly because Moses had fasted, Elijah had fasted, and of course our Lord Jesus Christ himself had fasted 40 days in the, in the desert as a focus, as we said, to, the, to making ourselves ready. So they went in there having been persecuted. And even now today there are still Christians being persecuted. Some of them bishops. I read about this bishop Ignatius Cardinal Kuhn who was released in 1985 after 30 years uh, in prison in China. And he eventually uh, was freed by the Chinese government and he was uh, quite surprised as uh, when he was freed that uh, that the church's sort of rule for Friday meat abstinence had been changed. It had said that it's not absolutely necessary to, to live abstinence from meat on Fridays. You can replace it with something else. You can replace it with prayer or you can replace it with uh, a work of charity. And uh, he was surprised to see this and for him, it was a perpetual Lent when he was in prison, solitary confinement, a lot of it. But he thought that the mortifications of his brethren in the West had been sustaining him. But in fact, it was the other way around. He, in his prison, in his perpetual Lent, was sustaining everybody else. We know that Pope John Paul II told him that he had secretly named him Cardinal in pectore, in 1979, years before he was freed. And they kept that secret until 1991. And on one occasion when he was in St. Peter's Square, in front of Pope John Paul II, well there he received the, the red hat and the, the crowd was full of jubilation, clapping for like seven or eight minutes long, straight. And the first thing that he said when he was freed was to the Pope, he says, Tu es Petrus. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. He kept the faith. And a lot of that was, uh, was due to the, the, the kind of Lent that he was living. He eventually died at the age of 99 in the year 2000. So during Lent, we can ask ourselves, well, who will I be sustaining with my Lenten mortifications? He sustained the whole church by his fidelity and his suffering. So who will I sustain? Maybe some mothers with their difficult pregnancies. Right now, with our prayer and fasting, we definitely have to sustain the people of the Ukraine people suffering there. Imagine if now you were told, okay, get your knapsacks and get ready. We've got to go now. You know, what would you take with you? Would you take your laptop? Would you take, what, what would you take? You know, would you take food? <sighs> and a lot of people have been fleeing and they're, they're, they're running away from the bombs. Would your Lenten mortifications sustain them? Will your Lenten mortifications maybe sustain 
people with a shaky marriage or maybe lonely priests that are stressed about their parishes and that maybe they're not getting support from their parishioners or for the sick or imagine people dealing with mental health issues people who are often misunderstood or just anybody who's going through the doldrums of winter so that they stay faithful Pope Francis says that now that we have begun Lent this is indeed the favorable time it's a good time and it will be favorable for us in some way it's not always easy to see that favor but the Lord will do something good for us during this Lent he will favor us so we have to dispose ourselves for this grace not simply to do what we ought to do naturally we have to fast today and tomorrow it will be a little bit different but how am I really going to sustain others with my prayer maybe my, my greater fidelity maybe I can forego something that I like that, that maybe distracts me more than anything else more and more now we know this about social media and the phone right? maybe, maybe there's some way I can purify myself of this we shouldn't let this time of Lent simply be a time of white-knuckling it and, uh, you know, faithful yes, but somehow unaware what the Lord is really striving to do to us. Ultimately, what He's trying to do to us is not just get us to follow certain rules, but a deep conversion. And therefore, we want to let the grace of this time be like a magnet that draws us closer to Him to follow the Lord really in greater intimacy. That's why this is a favorable time. And therefore, if it's a favorable time, it's a providential opportunity to really deepen in the value of our struggle, of our fraternity, and also it'll stimulate us to rediscover the mercy of God so that we become more merciful towards others that we have mercy that we are forgiving that we are understanding and maybe one of the tasks we can set ourselves to do is to see who can discover that mercy by helping them discover uh, the, the sacrament of penance the, sacra- the confession naturally the church proposes that we do certain tasks or you know, some, some details that will accompany us in this interior renewal. Traditionally it's prayer, traditionally fasting and, and almsgiving. What can I do with my prayer, improve it? How can I fast? Fasting can be from food, but it can also be from other things that I'm used to sharing uh, almsgiving can be a, a way of sharing my time giving up my time the Pope said uh, this year the Lord grant grants us once again a favorable time to prepare to celebrate with renewed hearts the great mystery of the death and resurrection of Jesus the cornerstone of our personal and communal Christian life we must continually return to this mystery in mind and heart. 
for it will continue to grow within us in the measure that we are open to its spiritual power and respond with freedom and generosity. We have to respond with freedom and generosity. And it's a favorable time because somewhere there we will grow. We will become more intimate, divest ourselves somehow of all those secondary things, those things that we cling to, that we think are the sources of our happiness or our joy. Imagine now if we could just forego some good legitimate joys, some good legitimate pleasures, these things that I thought brought me joy and happiness, but now suddenly I'm happier by foregoing them. I'm actually happy, not sad. Or not, you know, because I decided to forego this food or I don't know, this thing, this, this phone, time on the phone, or other little pleasures, other little comforts. I don't end up in, in anguish, but in greater joy. Because somehow there I'm contributing to the work of redemption. Don Avro wanted us to make good use of time. Good use of time. He said, in 1985, he said, I would like all of us to truly decide to follow our Lord's recommendations found in the Liturgy of the Mass of Ash Wednesday. There, there we are invited to increase our fasting, prayer, and works of charity. Doing so with an upright intention and joy, beseeching God that we take up battle against spiritual evils, and we may be armed with weapons of self-restraint. That's, that's from the Collect of Ash Wednesday. So we ask this, that we really not waste this time. It's a favorable time, so therefore we can't waste it. And we arrive truly, in that sense, truly happy at Easter time. When, we, when the Lord grants us the, the joy of being able to live through the Easter vigil. And our Blessed Mother is praying for us now. Maybe she too is dressed in purple and violet because she is uh, the mother of the church. So she'll intercede for us to make this the best Lent of my life, garnering all those graces I need. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you how to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.